Welcome to the Book Smarts Business Podcast. Conversations with business expert authors to learn about the author, their expertise, and to help you find your next read. And now, here's your host, best-selling author and CEO of Influence Network Media, Jody Brandsetter. Susan, welcome so much to the Book Smarts Business Podcast. I'm excited to talk about Arrive and Thrive, but before we talk about the book, tell us a little bit about you and what you do. Well, hi, Jody. Thank you so much for having me today. So who am I and what do I do? I am the mother of two awesome teenagers, one who's actually going to be 20 and the other 17, so both girls, and two Portuguese water dogs. And my professional life has me at this moment as the founding CEO of the Institute for Inclusive Leadership at Simmons University in Boston, Massachusetts, where I just worked on and collaborated with our president on our latest book with our co-author, Janet Foudy, who's the executive chair of Deloitte. So I also hold the Deloitte Ellen Gabriel Chair for Women in Leadership at Simmons University. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. I would love to know a little bit more about what you do there. Can you just expand a little bit? Sure. So the Institute for Inclusive Leadership was created to foster equity in leadership. We focus on more the mindset and the consciousness and and the awareness and the practices of effective leadership. So there's a world where we've got 50% of the world's population, women, also as 50% of the world's leaders. So we have courses and training and lots of articles and tools around allyship and collaboration at the leadership level to create equity. And we do all sorts of stuff. We have a big conference every year called the Simmons Leadership Conference. We had about 7,000 with us last year. We're in our 44th year. And so we always get amazing speakers and it's one of our biggest fundraisers as well. So my job as CEO is to preside over the Institute. Our COO, Kristen Paulson, really runs the daily show. And I am out and about speaking and talking to cool people like you about our work in the world. Awesome. So I can definitely understand why Arrive and Thrive is out in the world because of you and these amazing people. So before we talk about the book, though, you're a multi-author. So you've been doing this more than once. And I always think that if you do it more than once, and wow, it's exhausting to write a book. So what drives you to be an author? And what drove you to write this book? Oh boy. I guess I'm a storyteller at heart. You know, I love reaching people in ways that package up information so it's easy to kind of get their head around. I haven't written any fiction, but that's on the horizon, I think. This is my fourth book and my second collaborative work. For so long, Jody, I just figured I was an accidental author and an accidental speaker. And this book changed that. I'm a purposeful author and writer and a purposeful speaker and connector about these tools. And I'd say the single thing that drives me is to create less harshness and more respect in the minds of leaders so everyone can kind of come in and give their all at work. And so the more tools we can offer, the more we can reach people, the better. So writing happens to be one of the medium where I feel like I can reach people and it's really gratifying. It's also not about me, right? Like I've had the one woman rule or the one man rule. Like if there's one person after an event speaking saying like that really helped me, I'll do it again. And I feel that way about books. There's been some nice reaction to this one, which has me percolating on my next one. I love that. It's almost like giving birth, right? You forget the hard part because it's the end result is so amazing. And by the way, one of my mentors with my first book, Mastering Your Inner Critic, told me about the whale's belly. Have you heard about the whale's belly? No. 
it's when you're in the whale, you can't see the light behind you and you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's dark. It's intense. It's a slog at times. My first book for all sorts of reasons was just easier for me to write than this book. Or my second book was easier to write than this book. Like my first two books just kind of came out of me, but I was in the whale's belly for all four at some level at some time or another, you know, which is just, you just got to get up and do it. I slice it up into packaged for this book. It's like, okay, I've got nine, including the introduction and the conclusion. I've got eight or nine, 25 page papers. That's how I think about it. And I only do one at a time. That is a great little way of thinking about it, especially if you're used to writing 20 or 25 page documents. It just makes it feel more attainable. Totally. And my last two professionally published books have been, actually all four of them really have a very clear rubric. So when writing nonfiction for me, coming up with a rubric or the framework around which everything hangs, I have been able to isolate one chapter at a time and then go back with my co-authors and make connections and my editors. So it feels like a less daunting process. Well, tell us more about Arrive and Thrive. So you have you plus two other amazing authors who've written this book. Just reading the summary, I'm excited to hear more about it. So tell me a little bit more, maybe like a little synopsis of what the book's about. Well, the book is, I think the book is for anyone, however you identify. And Janet and Lynn and I really felt like women in particular needed not to forget ourselves on our own leadership journey. And that there were some practices at the stage of life where we have somewhat arrived. So we find ourselves in a station where we're enjoying a leadership position and it is hard because it's a little lonely and we're not set up to win the infrastructure around us if we're lucky enough to arrive, it doesn't help us to do much more than survive. And we dove into that and quickly came up with seven practices that we believed differentially helped us and went out to, I don't know, 25 sitting CEOs, most of them women, not all, and said, how did these land and what impacted you? And we had a book. And so I think of Arrive and Thrive and the seven impactful practices as a toolkit. It's a sort of an extended hand from us to the reader to say, hey, things like knowing how to be your authentic self and and knowing how to bounce back in a moment of, of a setback to flex those resilience muscles, the courage it takes to lead, you know, how to navigate a teaming environment, how to create inclusion. These are evergreen practices. And so we culled all the latest research and the best wisdom we could find, added our own, and it's a compilation of and a reduction of the best insight we could glean on these seven practices. And the idea of thriving is whatever you think thriving is for you. These are practices that will help you as you go, as you journey. I love the authentic self piece because that was something that when I was in corporate, I didn't have for myself. I worked in a very male dominated industry and I felt like I had to put a facade on for them to see me as one of them. And I just kind of wrote a story around that where I cried in a meeting because I was so mad. It was anger tears, which is usually when I cry is when I'm mad. And all of a sudden, like my authentic self came out. And then I thought, oh my gosh, what are they going to do with this? Are they going to tell everybody I cried? You know, how is this going to make me look? And actually the director, or I think it was actually senior director at that point appreciated it. And actually I felt like we had a better relationship after that because he saw my passion and my love for my team and the Mm -hmm. company. And the crying was not a big deal. I think he could just see the raw emotion. And Mm -hmm. I had no clue that I could actually show myself like that. 
Yeah, you know, I think maybe you were before your time. I think the pandemic really influenced this for knowledge workers is more than ever, people want real, they want genuine. And that means that the veneer of perfection has to come off. Now, that can't impact the quality of our work or our say-do ratio. So if I'm going to say I'm going to do something, I want you to believe that I'm going to do it. And I need people to work with me who I can count on. And there is something about this notion of being able to be safe and be me that allows us to give more of ourselves when we go to work. You know, The one interview that I loved in that chapter, we had several, but Carla Harris from Morgan Stanley talks about authenticity as our most competitive advantage. You know, no one can be you the way you can be you. So why, as long as it's safe in the environment, why not bring your full self to the table? It's just a a brilliant reframe on something that's been really scary for people at work. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that because it is, it has to be a safe environment for you to feel comfortable with being authentic. But once you see that, observe that it is, it's so powerful. I can tell you so many stories since that aha moment in like 2017, that I've been more willing to be authentic or just, you know, say I failed how I failed and how I was going to fix it. Just having that honest conversation up front versus trying to step back or walk around it. And it's like, no, you know what? I messed up. This is how I messed up. This is what happened. And this is how I'm going to fix it moving forward. That's more impactful to them than maybe kind of getting it right. Yeah, without question, without question, being able to own your mistakes and quickly repair with whatever the impact was is called learning in my book. (laughs) That's all. Curious to get your kind of perspective on inclusivity, because I do feel like companies, employers are really using that word a lot, especially I'm in the HR recruiting space. So, you know, trying to hire and retain talent right now can be a little difficult. And so a lot of times these buzzwords come out like inclusivity. And I don't know if companies know exactly what inclusivity means in a way that people might expect it when they're coming in or that belonging feel. Curious, what are some things that companies can be doing to help that inclusivity in that leadership level where there might be less women or people of color or LGBTQ or disabled individuals, how can companies really show that inclusivity or what do they need to do to kind of Mm. make sure it's actually happening versus just that check in the box or that we're going to say it, but we don't maybe mean it. Yeah. So when I talk to leaders, I don't care how senior they are, I have to remind us all that inclusion starts with an inside journey. First, it's really about adopting a mind frame of being curious. We can't possibly understand what it's like to be somebody else, even if they look like us, but especially if they don't. And even if they sound like us, but especially if they don't, right? So kind of coming to work and assuming I can't see everything that someone brings to the table. And therefore, maybe I wouldn't know if they were uncomfortable speaking up means it's on me to really create an environment where people can come in. And so the most helpful construct that I've seen about inclusion is the notion of all human beings want to feel like they can bring their unique self to any situation. It's inherent. It's how we feel worthy. And all human beings want to belong, as you said, this feeling of belonging. I think a leader's job, before we get an inclusive culture, we have to make sure, gosh, can you bring your unique strengths to the table? My job as a leader is first to figure out who are you? Like, what do you bring? What lights you up? What are your unique strengths? And then look for ways to make room for them. And then some practices of belonging are being aware 
if there's one person who might dominate a conversation, being the upstander in the moment saying, hey, I think Joe is trying to speak up, or I think Suze didn't get the opportunity to say what she thought, right? Like it's being attentive to how people are participating and any inequity in that. So I think all these words, to your point, like we've used a lot of language that has turned off a lot of people to something that I think is about returning us all to being more human and seeing each other as human. And therefore, you know, if you're a leader, it's our job to maximize the capital that human beings bring to the table. We're not going to do that if we don't connect and care and give some thought. So it's a long-winded answer. There's a lot of information and I can repeat this at inclusiveleadership.com. That's our institute, but we have some white papers and we've got a little playbook that's available on Amazon. That's the work of the inclusive leader. It's very short. And my co-author and I, Elisa Van Dam, wanted it to be short because there's just a finite number of practices that we have found make it really easy for everybody to even be in the dance of leading inclusively. Love that. I absolutely love that. And I think the pandemic also kind of showed us humanity or the human side of businesses. You really saw a lot of companies thrive with being able to provide that support and that room for their employees to be able to get through such a crazy time that none of us had ever imagined. And so I talked to people who before the pandemic weren't really that excited about their company, but during the pandemic and afterwards, they saw this humanity in them Mm -hmm. that actually made them want to work for them even more. And obviously you saw the opposite too, right? Where there wasn't the support, but I think women had a lot of the grunt during this time, a lot of having to make some really hard decisions and having companies who could support them, I think sometimes failed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, the output of the pandemic is every bit of she session, you know, it has materially impacted women, differentially impacted women. And on the flip side of that, which I think is the silver lining is there was a lot of us who weren't bringing ourselves along on our own leadership journey, who weren't bringing ourselves along on our own life journey, who would not accuse ourselves as thriving, who had the opportunity to pump the brakes a little bit on life during the pandemic. And I think it could be the great liberation, right? It could be And I think we're going to see more and more of this of women saying, okay, here's what I need and want in order to engage fully and productively without leaving myself behind, which I'm rooting for. I'm preaching from the rafters here, trying to say, everybody stop and take care of yourself a little bit too, you know? Yeah. There's so many times, especially as a woman, you have so many hats that you wear. And then the hat that we always forget to put on is our self hat where we're like, okay, did I make my doctor's appointments this year? Did I take care of me? Did I floss? Did I brush my teeth? I mean, there's just like some of the basic necessities that sometimes we miss because we're so focused on taking care of others. And also we don't get like extra bonus points in heaven or whatever you believe after life is if we, you know, forget ourselves. Like I actually think loving and caring and tending to oneself is a wonderful act, not a selfish act. And so with the prevalence of wellness, well-being and self-care initiatives in corporate America, I think we're going to start to see this really change in the workplace because it's one of the benefits that companies are providing to their employees now is it's not just we have a gym. I mean, the value value of well-being. It's mind, body, spirit. It's pretty amazing what's happening. It's a good outcome. 
Yeah, I'm excited to see how these changes affect because when you get a large group of people who all say, Oh, nope, don't want to do this anymore. I want to do this. That's when things shift. That's when everyone starts to change the well, we've always done it this way mentality. Or when a group of people are saying, I can't afford to do it this way, actually can't afford it. And then it's like, oh, but you don't like your numbers now because you don't have as much, you know, 50% of the world's population being women, we got to figure out how women can thrive in all facets of society. And there are invisible barriers for us that just because we woke up women, the organizational life and organizational leadership was built on some constructs that are old and tired. Now we have to redream what it means to lead. So going back to the purpose of the book, to be honest, I've wanted to ignite women and young women's light around leading because it doesn't look like a very fun proposition in a lot of places you look, right? It just looks like more work and more tired and less self-care. It does not have to be like that. So I love to remind people when you're in a position of authority or when you're in a position of leadership, you can set the tone. You can begin to set the tone for what self-care looks like, what connection looks like, what values and teamwork look like, right? You can affect how you feel a lot of the times. So I just want to remind listeners of that. It's a privilege to lead, in my opinion. It's a privilege, but then it also becomes an honor when you are able to transform that old way or whatever. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, I was able to show my team that this could happen. And that's one thing that as a leader, I was always inspiring to do was to set that example so that my team knew they could be so much more. And I wanted them to be so much more. And I think that mindset is something that, you know, having more female leaders, I think would 100% continue to grow and thrive. So I had to throw the thrive in. (laughs) Thank you. We did write the book. We didn't define thrive, but we give you a lot of clues as to how to discover thriving. The other thing I just want to leave with is the fact that we discovered that thriving is every bit of journey. There is no arrival at thriving, right? How we see ourselves and how we see thriving will change as we age. It'll change at different stations, depending upon who's at home with us and what kind of relationships we're in and what excites us about our professional lives or not. Like these things evolve. And so my great experience excitement about this work is hopefully it's a tool that gets picked up over the course of many years for the same person who's just ready to sort of, you know, look within again and think about in my current life context, how can I thrive? That's an inside journey. A lot of this book is an inside journey before it becomes a journey of leading others, which I think is for me, the greatest honor bringing that to the world in this way. I love that. Susan, it's been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. How can our listeners connect with you and how can they buy Arrive and Thrive? Well, thank you for the question. So you can find out more about Arrive and Thrive at arriveandthrive.com. That's the book website. It's also available on Amazon. And inclusiveleadership.com is the Institute's website where there are lots of resources. And eventually we're working right now to bring the seven practices of Arrive and Thrive to meaningful life. And so we will have all sorts of goodies at inclusiveleadership.com about that as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Book Smarts Business Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the show and share this episode with a friend. In the meantime, join our business author community where you can connect with other business authors and learn about becoming an author at authors.influencenetworkmedia.com. Until next time.